All right. Um, at the beginning of the series, I said that I was going to try to get through a chapter a week. I really struggled with that in chapters 9, 10, and 11, because they could be a series all themselves. Um, but I'm trying to stay true to what I said and get through this. So I'm going through an area that Paul addresses mysteries, things that aren't fully understood, and we see through a glass darkly, and we have to be careful about making uh, assertions that, um, that we may not be able to sustain uh, with, with other biblical, biblical texts. I'm trying to do that. So we're reaching what I think is the conclusion of Paul's theological explanation for the plan of God and the gospel. He began in chapter 1. He goes through chapter 11 with that big picture and that plan. And then beginning with chapter 12, he's going to become a little more practical. How then do we live because God is doing what he's doing? We'll start that next time. Now, he's concluded that both Jews and Gentiles, whether they have the Torah or don't, are sinners. And he's explained there's a righteousness based on the Torah that is actually unattainable because human beings have what Paul calls a law of sin and death in us that reacts to God's good and holy commandments and results in a flood of sin. Uh, Judaism calls that a yetzer hara. Uh, Protestants call it uh, sin nature. There is this thing in us that rebels against God that Paul says is in our flesh. It's in our body, but it's, it's more than just about the body. But God sent his son to address sin because what the Torah could not do, it could not give life because of our problem. God did by sending his son and through his death, burial, and resurrection conquered and paid the sin price for that disobedience that we have done. So we who trust in God and in his promises are buried with him in baptism and we will also show the likeness of him in resurrection. So Paul says we're to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God as we await the adoption of sons and the resurrection of our bodies at the return of the Lord. And Paul says that this righteousness of faith that Abraham had, that we have, is testified to in the law and the prophets. Anyone reading them should be able to see that. But Paul's distressed because many of his fellow Jews at the time are ignorant of the righteousness of faith and are trying to gain favor with God by their own righteousness through obedience to the Torah. That's not true of all his fellow Jews. He explains that the true descendants of Abraham are sons of Abraham, sons of promise, because of this righteousness of faith. So God has children of promise like Isaac and children of the flesh like Ishmael and that difference he explains more in Galatians. You can look at that later if you want. Um, but God then says he has mercy and compassion on whomever he wills. And he can make from the same lump, sinful flesh, a vessel of glory and a vessel of wrath. Those vessels of wrath he endures with great patience 
begging them to turn to him and they will not. That's our natural state, enmity against God. But he also makes vessels of faith by grace and faith that is given to us. We didn't turn because we turned. We turned because his grace came to us in that sense. God, we're all sinners, but God is rich in mercy towards those who have faith. Now last week, I said Paul was discussing the situation of his own time with Israel, who are the recipients of the promises of the Torah, of the temple, and have the advantage, but they have stumbled over a rock of offense. And God said that they would not keep his commandments. He told them that he would end up scattering them. But he didn't say, I will reject you. He in fact said, even if I scatter them to the ends of the earth, if the sun and the moon and the stars continue in their path, I will not reject Israel as a nation. So we come to Romans 10, those verses at the end that I was frustrated with. Uh, I want to pick up at that point. Beginning at verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? Moses said, I will make you jealous by a nation which is not a nation, and by a nation without understanding, a foolish nation, some translations put, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold. I was found of those who did not seek me, and I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now when that's read just that way, it really sounds like God has said to Israel, come to me and they're rejecting him. He's not rejecting them. They're rejecting him. And those Gentiles who didn't know him are beginning to come to him. Paul's going to make that clearer in chapter 11. The danger here is to take these passages and create this kind of replacement theology. I'll talk about that later. So I want you to look at what Paul says immediately after he quotes Isaiah in this context about they're disobedient and they're not, they're obstinate. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now I just want you to look at that one verse, because that's Paul's answer to the question that he asked. When God says this, is he rejecting Israel? No, I'm an Israelite, Paul says. And he says, he gives his credentials in that context. I'm a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. I know who I am in Israel. God has not rejected us. Here I am. But he's going to go further. And I want you to listen to the next verses very carefully. God is not, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. 
But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. An item that he has been repeating from the earlier chapters. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Wow. Paul's making an important point that I think gets missed. He is not talking about all Israel. He's already said, I'm Israel. He's not talking about himself. And he talks about the people whom God foreknew. Those of his gracious choice within Israel. And his example is Elijah. Now Elijah reaches a point where he thinks he's the only one left. It's just me and you God. Israel's completely rejected you. And I'm it. And that's it. And God says, no, no, that's not it. Now, I think Paul could have thought the same thing. I'm Israel. And the rest of them are rejecting you, God. They're seeking my life. Paul had been seeking the lives of those who were believers in Yeshua. And now he understands that some of Israel are seeking his life. He could feel the same way. But what is the mention? God says, I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. These are the remnant of God's grace in Israel that are always there, Paul says. Always there. And so he says, Elijah didn't know the remnant. I don't think Paul knows the remnant either. But he knows that they're there even though the louder voices of the hardened hearts are sounding like the whole of Israel. They are not all of Israel. And I think today there are still Jews who trust God. And they know that they are in need of God's mercy for salvation. And they wait and long for the promises to come about in a full measure. And I don't know who they are. And neither do you. But God knows. I've met some that I suspect are part of that remnant. They have a very deep reverence and humility for God. They don't believe that their obedience is earning them salvation. They're in desperate need of God's grace and mercy. But they are staying connected to God through the covenants that he gave them. While they wait for the consolation of Israel. That larger part of Israel remains in the position and the condition that Paul describes. But even that's not the end of the story. So I want you to look at Romans 11. 11. Verse 
So I say then, did they not stumble so as to fall? May it never be. The stumbling block that we've been talking about, which is the rock of offense, Jesus himself, the gospel that is proclaimed about him, is not there to have them completely fall. He says, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul says, I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, that's us, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm magnifying my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So Paul goes on now to give a hint of what God is doing. He's moving towards a fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and his seed and for Israel. Israel's not out of the picture. The transgression of Israel has been the means of our salvation as Gentiles. Had Israel fully accepted Jesus when he came? There wouldn't be us. And Paul says, if that's a great thing, and it is a great thing, what greater thing is the acceptance of Israel and their entire fulfillment? That God is working in his own way and in his own time. So now Paul says, so I want you to know what I'm doing. I'm trying to move some of those hardened ones to jealousy in order to get some of them saved. Paul wants to reach his fellow Jews, even in their hard-heartedness. Because that's where he was. And he wants to save some of them. He says, if the world is reconciled by their rejection, their acceptance will be life from the dead, the resurrection and the coming of the kingdom. They have not stumbled to fall permanently. So Paul's going to explain a principle and warn us in that principle in verses 16 to 18. If the first piece of dough is holy, then the whole lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. So Paul says, I want you to understand that Israel in its roots, in its, in its initial lump, is holy, and Israel is holy to the Lord. And he says, if the root is holy, the branches are holy. And he says, 
you guys got in by being grafted from a wild branch without hope and without God in the world. And you were grafted into that natural root and you are benefiting from that. That's where your life is coming from. You're not giving life to it. It's giving life to you. So, this boasting against the branches is not wise. Don't be arrogant towards the natural branches. Those still in and those broken off. So Paul then picks it up in verse 19. But you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, you're right. They were broken off for their unbelief. And you stand by your faith. Don't be conceited, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. So understand the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness And if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. Arrogance says, God loves me, and he took me and he rejected them. And Paul says, watch out for that. They were rejected because of their lack of faith, and you're here by faith. They can turn in their faith. He's going to talk about that. So look at his his next statement. He says, And they also, verse 23, If they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in. For if you were cut off from what by nature is a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? We see that happening in the Messianic movement as we see uh, part of Israel that is coming to faith in in the Messiah. We see them grafted in and and thriving. And in some cases they're thriving uh, better than we are uh, because of our arrogance. I'm always reminded when I read this passage of Rabbi Shipman reminding me that I got in by graft. It's a little joke he likes to do. It's not natural for us. Uh, We we come from outside this root that God has been doing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet we thrive. And Paul says, if you can thrive, how much better will the natural branch thrive if they're grafted in? So, i got to watch myself here. Verse 25. This is um, a difficult passage. Well, first of all, the one I just read is difficult because a lot of us have this idea that we said the magic words and so we're grafted in and that's permanent. And Paul says, no, 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 you... You, you stand by faith. 
We're in this grace by faith that's given to us by God, but that's a continuous thing. It's not a one time I did the transaction and now I'm gone. It's a walking with God and trusting in God, knowing that you're in desperate need of his mercy and his grace. So now Paul's going to go to a section that when I first read this, I didn't know what to do with it. So I went to commentary after commentary after commentary, and it was clear to me that they didn't know what to do with it. So I want to tread lightly on this this part of the text. But verse 25 is important. Paul says, I want to help you with the mystery. Now, Paul does this in many of his writings. He helps us with the mystery of the second coming. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. And the one who dies and believes in me shall live again. And that's exactly what Paul says. I'll show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. When the Lord returns, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain will be caught up with them. He unfolds some of that mystery. He's going to do one here for us. So verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Part of the stumbling of Israel is not their doing. Part of the stumbling is God's doing. That he might give grace to you and me. That's why Paul says, I don't want you, I don't want you boasting. I want you to understand something. That in God's working, there is something going on. In the same way that Joseph suffered ultimately to help his brothers. There is suffering going on here in Israel that's to your benefit. You should not be boasting against that. And there is a period that he's talking about. This fullness of the Gentiles that is the the foreknown Gentiles that God is bringing in. That I don't know when that ends and you don't know when that ends. I think we're getting closer to it. It's getting harder and harder to get a Gentile to accept the Lord. You've got to have valet parking and you've got to have special ministries and all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the word and the spirit are not enough. And then Paul says these words. Verse 26. And so, his word there means in this manner... Israel, all Israel, will be saved. And then he gives a a text. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is not the covenant with us. We are brought in by the gospel. Israel is working through a covenant with God, and God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them where I'll write my laws in their hearts and in their minds. They couldn't do it. 
Now, I'm going to get back to verse 28, but I want to look at that quotation. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 59. And as I've told you before, when Paul quotes a chapter or a verse, he's not expecting you to just look at those verses. He's expecting that you know the context of this. I believe I can summarize the context of chapter 59, because I don't want to be here all day. I can summarize chapter 59 with verses 1 and 2, verses 12 and 13, and then going to 20 and 21, which he quotes. So let me try that. God is speaking to Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He goes on and explains this in more detail that I think Israel, uh, the remnant of Israel understands in their own hearts. So I want to pick it up at verses 12 and 13. Israel is responding, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. And our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressions and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. And he goes on, as Israel, uh, the, the remnant, knows their struggle, their inability to save themselves. So what does God say? This is the part that Paul quotes. Verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion. And those who turn from transgression in Jacob. Declares the Lord. As for me. This is my covenant with them says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you. And my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. Partial hardening, but also a remnant that knows that they're in desperate need of God's salvation, His Yeshua, and they are desperate for God to... to, to, Fulfill his promises. And they know that their righteousness does not give them standing with God. They are hoping in the promises made to Abraham. So back to chapter 11 verse 28. This is a verse that I love to discuss with people. Because... Nobody really wants to discuss it. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
that partial hardening of the Jews who stumbled over the gospel that's expressed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that they're not quite sure makes them enemies for our sake as we come to faith and salvation. But God has reserved his remnant for him. That doesn't mean all Jews are saved, and that's why Paul wants to go after the hard-hardened. He don't know which ones are partially hardened for God's purposes and ones that are in full rebellion, and he's going to proclaim the Lord no matter what. So now he explains what I think he thinks is the answer to all of this. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, but because of the mercy shown to you, they also now will be shown mercy. For God has shut all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Paul says, you were disobedient because of your disobedience. Uh, Their disobedience, you were shown mercy. So now God is showing mercy to them. He's placed us all in disobedience that he can show mercy to all that he chooses. So Paul sees in this the full plan of God and ultimately the salvation of all Israel and the nations. Is it the salvation of all the nations? No. Is it the salvation of everybody who's come from Abraham? No. But it is all of those whom God foreknew and who God has called to himself. Those who turn from their sin and trust in the God of Abraham and in his promises and see themselves in need of grace and mercy. So I want to look at a passage that I have pondered for many, many, many years. Because I grew up in the, in the parachurch where we had formulized the gospel. We had the words, the contract was there. You say these words, now you're saved. You know? and, and the whole issue is or issue ain't God's baby kind of mindset. And Paul seems to say it's bigger than that. There's more going on there. And so the passage that uh, I have pondered is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Now leading into this, Jesus says that God is going to uh, hear those who are desperately crying out to him. And he says, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's Paul's issue in these chapters. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. Stereotypically, you can't get a broader spectrum than that in, in Paul's time and Jesus' time. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You're lucky to have me, God. 
But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now there's nothing here about that guy accepting Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Clearly, that's part of the promises, and they see it clearer or less clear, just as we see it clearer or less clear. There is no salvation apart from the atonement that Jesus gave. But the application of that atonement is to those who humble themselves before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, knowing that they cannot bring about their salvation and desperately crying out for the mercy and grace of God. Now you and I know that the mercy and the grace of God is named Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Yeshua, salvation. For he shall save his people from their sins. And now Paul loses it. Well, he doesn't lose it. He's really on firm ground. He moves into a doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's his counselor? Who's who's his advisor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Nobody. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Now, I want you to go back with me to this passage in Isaiah 59. I want to zero in on something. Verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, talking of Israel. My spirit which is upon you. And my words which I put in your mouth. The word and the spirit is what's keeping Israel, that remnant. It is the word and the spirit as the gospel goes forward that is calling people to him. And for, for a time, Israel is having a harder time with that than we are. So that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. But I think that's coming to a close. So I want to add something here that Paul doesn't write about because he's writing about his time and I'm talking now after 2,000 years of church history. The history of the Gentile churches is not helpful to Israel. The church has persecuted Israel. We've inflicted replacement theology on them. 
and we've changed the Jesus of the Gospels into a non-Jewish Savior who ended the Torah by his death and resurrection. That's a stumbling block God didn't intend. We're supposed to make them jealous because we have what they seek. But what we have doesn't appeal to them. So I think we need to do better to try to explain the righteousness of faith that is the essence of the gospel. I think we need to be sensitive to the partial hardening that will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles comes, though I believe that that is coming near. And we can try to express our faith in clearer parallels to Judaism so that they will become jealous. You know this, and I've said it before. Kid doesn't want the toy until another kid wants it. And then they go, oh, that's mine, right? We have to handle the word and the spirit in a way that Israel, even through the partial blindness, the partial hardening, the partial veil, sees something so that his spirit and his word will quicken in them. In these 11 chapters, Paul's tried to explain the purpose of God in bringing salvation to the world and the gospel first to Israel and to the nations. That salvation is by grace. It's entered into by faith, which is trusting in God who justifies the sinner by faith. He provides the offering. He provides the atonement through his Messiah. We need to pray for Israel that they will, in this time, as they observe Hanukkah, as we're looking at Advent, that that many of the, the songs that we sing refer to Israel. And I want God's spirit and God's word to affect Israel as we go through this time. Let's pray.